Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him and all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might have preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross." You may be seated, and let's take a few minutes to reflect together on God's Word. The most important question to answer in your lifetime or anyone's lifetime is this question, who is Jesus? The most important question anybody will ever answer in their lifetime is the question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? It's the question that was on the minds of everyone 2,000 years ago when he roamed the planet. Who, who is this particular person? He's not like anyone, ever, anyone else we've ever encountered. And when you read through the book of John, you get a wide variety of responses to who Jesus is. John chapter 1, Jesus is the Lamb of God. John chapter 3, Jesus is a teacher from God. John chapter 4 and chapter 6, Jesus is a prophet. John chapter 7, Jesus is a deceiver. John chapter 8, Jesus is demon-possessed. John chapter 10, Jesus is insane. John chapter 12, Jesus is the King of Israel. Just when you read through, you get a flavor that this person that everyone is encountering is completely different than anybody else, and so you have to draw some kind of conclusion about who he is. And on a particular road trip, Jesus takes his disciples... And he takes them to this little town called Caesarea Philippi. And the Caesarea Philippi is full of idols, full of competitors. And he sort of stands on the stage, as it were, and he asks his little band of of brothers, these 12 disciples, "Who, who do you say that I am? Am I like one of these or am I something of a different kind? And Peter gets it right when he says, you are the Christ, you're the Messiah, you're the son of the living God. So as Christians, we're not Jewish. We believe that the Messiah has come. We're not looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. We think he has arrived and his name is Jesus Christ. He's Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah. In fact, the entire purpose is the purpose of John's gospel is to help the reader come to that same conclusion. He says in his very last chapter, chapter 20, 
Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. I've written all this stuff down, hoping that you would come to this conclusion that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. The whole purpose of reading through John for the writer, John the Apostle, is to say, hey, this person came. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And now I'm trying to help you understand that as he walked on the planet, people had different kind of intersections with Jesus. Some thought he was the Lamb of God. Some thought he was insane. And now you get to the end of the book and he's asking you, well, who do you think Jesus is? Because who is Jesus is the most important question anybody can answer in their lifetime. In Colossians chapter 1, these verses that we read this morning, we're presented with one of the greatest New Testament descriptions of Jesus. This passage, along with the hymn that was written in Philippians chapter 2, are, are Paul's probably Paul's best attempts at trying to just distill down the answer to the question, who is Jesus? He's trying to answer that question in this particular passage. And when you read through the passage, when you read through these five verses, I, I think the best way to think about reading these verses is like if you were standing at the edge of the Grand Canyon. Or... If you were in a hospital room and you just are now for the very first time holding your newborn infant. Or it's been a long separation between you and a lover and you meet together. When you read these verses, the best thing to do is to not say anything. To just stand and admire the, the grandeur, the, the beauty of what you're looking at. Because it, as soon as you begin to try to describe it, you're narrowing it down in some way. And so Paul is writing these verses, this letter, from a prison cell in Rome. And so I'm imagining that he's sitting there... And he's thinking about this church, and he's trying, to ex he's trying to exhort this church, he's trying to help them understand who Jesus is, and he's remembering his own encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. And it was so blinding of an of encounter, he was blinding himself temporarily. But he has to use some kind of words to describe it, and so he chooses these particular words. And these particular words aren't just a statement, they're a hymn. Some people believe Paul wrote the hymn. Some people believe the hymn was part of the New Testament church and he just imported it into his letter. But either way, what's happening here is Paul's trying to describe something that has so much beauty, that has so much magnificence, he can't just state it, he has to sing it. That's what makes a love song great, is because it's not just stating truths, it's, it's conveying emotion. And so that's what Paul's doing. He's not just trying to state some, some sort of static truth. When you read it, think of it as a song. Think of it as a, a love song, an emotional song that not only moves you in your mind, it moves you in your heart, it moves you in your soul. 
That's the, the theme of these particular, the feel of these particular verses. And there's lots of ways to sort of divide it, but I think the easiest way is to, to see it in sort of two, two stanzas. Verses 15 through 18 is Jesus is uh, supreme. Uh, verses 19 through 20, Jesus is sufficient. So, so prior to, to examining the text here, I want to ask this particular question. Why is it here? Why did Paul put it right here? He could have put it anywhere in the letter, but he decided to put it right here. Uh, Paul's finished his introduction, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. He's offered words of encouragement, chapter 1, 3 through 8. He's prayed for the people. We've looked at that for two weeks, verses 9 through 14. And now with verse 15, Paul sort of launches in to instruction or teaching throughout the rest of the letter. So he's had his introduction, he's had his encouragement, he's had his prayer, and now for the rest of the letter, he's going to teach the people in the church particular truths... And he begins by inserting this hymn. Why does he make the hymn the launching pad for his instructions? And I think the answer is that Paul understood that the church was a a new church plant. And they were under constant threat. They, They were under constant threat of deceptive doctrine or what I'm going to call counterfeit truths. He understood that this new church plant, they're just, just beginning and they're, they're underneath this constant threat of uh, cultural counterfeits, worldly temptations, idolatry, sexual perversion, materialism, all things of the world that are making promises, but they can't keep those promises. He understands there's this cultural tidal wave always trying to overcome the church. And so he's trying to insert this particular truth here. And he also understands that the church is under this attack of religious counterfeits. And they come in all kinds of styles. We talked about some of them last week. But, the, but what they have the effect of is the religious counterfeits have the effect of reducing Jesus. And they either reduce him to say, well, he's not really supreme or he's not really sufficient. Look at chapter 2, verses 8 or eight through 10 with me. You get a sense of it. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy, empty deceit, anything according to human tradition or elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Christ the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. You just can't say it any more clearly. He is supreme. Verse 10, and you have been filled with him. He is sufficient. But Paul understands there's these counterfeit truths always trying to penetrate the church to say, well, Jesus isn't quite supreme, so you need something else. Or he's not quite sufficient, so you need something else. And so Paul's trying to Trying to say, no, this is the real thing. You've probably heard about the, the methods that bankers use to train their tellers or other people who handle a lot of uh, 20s or 50s or $100 bills. How can you tell a, a real one from a counterfeit one? And really, there's just two different ways to train. You can either say, here are all the types of counterfeits that people are coming up with, so become familiar with all the counterfeits out there. 
or the ways in which people counterfeit 20s or 50s or 100s. Or you can just say, hey, I want you to become so familiar with the real one that any time a counterfeit comes in, whatever the kind, you would know it right away. And they primarily use the second method. They primarily help you become so familiar with a real $20 bill, a real $100 bill, so that any time a counterfeit comes, you would say, oh, this is a counterfeit. Because you're so familiar with the truth that you can easily spot a lie, a counterfeit. And essentially, that's what Paul's doing in these verses. He's trying to say, here's a real $100 bill. Here's the real Jesus. I'm trying to say it as clearly and as crisply and as concise as I possibly can so that anything that comes in from the culture, from, from religion, anything that enters in, you would say, oh, no, that sort of looks right, but no, it's not right because I know the truth. So Paul's trying to offer this very clear picture of who Jesus is, and he's doing it in these two ways. He's trying to say that Christ is supreme and Christ is sufficient. So we'll, let's look at uh, this Christ is supreme. It's the, the, all we have time for this morning. Verses 15 through 18. Verse 15. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Listen to how the writer of Hebrews writes similarly. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory in the exact representation of his being. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory in the exact representation of his being. Now, every analogy we understand breaks down at some point. But the writer of Hebrews is trying to say that Jesus... Uh, relates to God the same way rays relate to a sun. There is no time that the sun exists without its beams of radiance. The sun doesn't exist and then decide, hey, I'm going to give off some beams of rays. It's going to just, it does it naturally. It is part of its, the extension of its being. The sun and its rays can't be separated. The, the rays of the sun are begotten. They're not created. They're not made. The rays of the sun are an extension of the sun. So Christ is eternally begotten. He's not created. He's not made. And, and you know that you can only see the sun through the rays. If you were to go outside, it's too cloudy maybe right now, but if you could look up and see the sun, and you could say, no, I, I can see the sun you know that you're not really looking at the sun. You're looking at the rays of the sun that left the sun eight minutes ago and now are just getting to planet Earth. And you're looking back through the rays to actually see the sun. So when you see the sun, you see the Father. Listen to how Jesus states it at the Last Supper in John chapter 14. Jesus says, no one comes to the Father except through me. They're at the Last Supper. They get some sense that something's going to happen here. Jesus is speaking in different terms, in different tone. And he kind of leans in. He says, if you want to get to God, if you want to get to the Father, nobody gets there except through me. And Philip, one of the disciples, says, okay, can you show us the Father? 
And he looks at Philip and he looks at all the other disciples and he says, when you've seen me, you've seen the father. I and the father are one like sun and its rays. When you've seen me, it's the same thing as seeing the father. Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. Jesus is God with skin on, as somebody wrote. So as followers of Christ, we're not atheists. We believe that there is a God. And we're not agnostics. Agnostics typically would say, well, there may be a God, there may be some kind of force, but he can't, he or it can't be known. No, we would say there is a God. And that he can be known. And he actually wants to be known. He's come so he could be known. Verse 15, Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. Now, this is one of the most um, controversial verses in the whole Bible. And it has been controversial over all of church history. And the question is, when Paul uses the word firstborn, does he mean that Jesus is a created being? Zachary is my firstborn. It's an appropriate way to say it. The question that we're trying to ask here in this text is, because Paul uses the word firstborn, does he mean to say that God existed and then he birthed or created in some way Jesus? It's a pivotal question. And firstborn, if you look in that through uh, the biblical text, it can either mean first in time or first in rank. It's used both ways. It's either first in time or first in rank. Or maybe put another way, it's first in chronology or first in authority. So you have to ask yourself, which way is Paul using this word right now? Is it about chronology or time or is it about rank and authority? In 325 A.D., this was the big question in the church. And there was a group of people led by a guy named Arius, and his little jingle, so it would stay in your head, would be this. There was a time when the sun was not. So he stood up at his pulpits and he said, hey, there was a time when Jesus was not. There was God, and then he created Jesus, and then Jesus created all other things. So it created this huge controversy. And so they had to bring together this uh, council. And obviously, there are several problems with this statement, and we can't go into all of them. But first, the belief isn't supported biblically. That's the biggest problem. Secondly, only God should be worshipped, not something created. Jesus asks for and receives worship. Third, only God can save mankind. A created being of any kind can't save, can't forgive sins. And so the church council was called in order to sort of have a clear statement. And they met at a little town in Italy or in Turkey called Nicaea. And at the end of the council, they came up with what's called the Nicene Creed, 325. And we read that creed this morning. 
And you get a sense of why this question was so important by what we've read. Let me just reread some of it to you. I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made. You see, they were trying to make sure it got all nailed down. It feels like a bunch of lawyers, does it not? Well, let's, let's make sure there's, there's no wiggle room. Let's say it 15 ways, 15 different ways and put it in a paragraph. So there's no way to sort of wiggle out or scoot out because they knew people would say, well, it's kind of like, no, it's not kind of like, it's this way. He is the visible image of the invisible God. When you've seen Jesus, you have seen God. He's not a created being. And so they're trying to nail that down. And, of course, that fight or that argument continues into our day. Modern day adherence to Arius are Jehovah's Witnesses. They would believe that there was a time when Jesus was not. It's a big separating point between what Christians believe and what what a Jehovah's Witness believes. And if you read a Jehovah's Witness Bible... And you came to Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. This is what it would say. For by him all other things were created. So when they come to your door and they open their Bible, they've inserted a word that's not in the text. You see, it's counterfeit. But if you're not super familiar with the real thing, one little inserted word, see, it makes it worthless. And so you have to be careful when you're hearing what you're hearing from the, from the culture, from other religions. Do you really know the true so that when somebody inserts just one small word, one small different thing, you go, yeah, you got a lot of it. But this one thing, it makes it a counterfeit. It's worth pointing out here that Jesus is not only not a created being, he's also not the creation. Jesus is not only not a created being, he's also not the creation itself. In other words, we're not pantheists. That's what a pantheist would believe, that that creation somehow is divine itself. And that's not what we would say. We would say Jesus is the creator, not the creation. Christians aren't Jehovah's Witnesses. Christians aren't pantheists. We don't believe that the created universe is identical with divinity. God made trees and God made mountains, but God isn't a tree and God isn't a mountain. So you may love a tree, but when you cut it down, you're not cutting down God. And that seems kind of funny, but in our culture, in different areas, that's a very commonly held belief that somehow there's divinity in the creation itself. And we would say, no, that's not how the Bible reads. So we're not pantheists. Verse 16. Then Paul's trying to to kind of give you an extent of the supremacy of Jesus. Listen to this. By Jesus, all things were created in him and on earth, visible, invisible. And Jesus is over all thrones, dominions, rulers and authorities. 
So he's just trying to say it kind of like the Nicene Creed. I'm trying to nail it down to say, I want you to know that Jesus is bigger than anything. Anything on heaven and earth, anything that you can see, anything you can't see. And then all these spiritual powers, this list, thrones, dominions, rulers, and authority. Probably a list of some sort of spiritual hierarchy. Nobody's quite sure. But there are spiritual forces in the world, and Paul is saying Jesus is above all of those things. He reigns supreme in all of those areas. Paul's reinforcing the truth that nothing happens. Paul is reinforcing the truth that nothing happens. Nothing happens outside or apart from Jesus' supreme sovereignty. He's in control of all things, seen and unseen. He's in control of everything good. He's in control of everything evil. Now, I want to say, praise the Lord, that somebody is in control. Because I know I'm not. Because I know that my life seems to be falling apart a lot. And I look around and sometimes it feels like evil seems to be winning. And I want to know that there's somebody there that's saying, hey, Paul, I've got it all held together. You continue to remain faithful. I'll make sure it all comes together at the end. And so that Paul is trying to encourage this young church to say there is a supreme being. His name is Jesus. He can and wants to be known. And he is holding all things together, even when your life is unraveling and coming apart. You can trust that Jesus has it all together. That's a great message. And he's trying to remind these people of this truth. So as Christians, we're not dualist. Dualism. We're not dualist. We don't believe what is fairly common in Eastern religions, that there are these two competing forces in the world. Whether it's good and evil or otherwise, you see it mostly in surf shops and stuff, this yin-yang symbol. You know what I'm talking about? I can't describe it if, I, if you don't, so I'm sorry. But this, this sort of the, the, the black and the white, these things that sort of seem to chase each other, but neither one really has the authority to take over the other. We're not dualists. We believe that there is no two equal but opposing forces we believe that there are all kinds of forces in the world, but there is no force equal to Jesus. Jesus is supreme over every other force, over every other power. A few years ago, we went, several of us went on a mission trip to Peru. And it's very interesting to go to Peru. We went to a city there called Cusco, and we helped out some missionaries there. And one of the most interesting parts is when you walked around the residential areas, you'd see these homes, and they have this sort of the typical sort of A-frame uh, rooftop, and you would notice there would be things on top of the roof, little symbols. And almost most of the home, almost all the homes had a cross on top of the, on the house. But then you would notice other things on the top of this rooftop. Bulls, a ladder, little bottles. And so we would ask the missionaries, hey, would, you know, what's that? And they would say, well, what, what they're trying to say is this house, the, the people in this home are living underneath the power of these things. 
And so there, many of them were Christians, so they have a cross saying we're, we're underneath the power, we're underneath the influence, we're motivated by Christ. And then they would have a bull, that was a, a sign of fertility or prosperity. And then the latter was increasing prosperity. So I've got a bull, so I get prosperous, but I also want more prosperity, so I have a ladder. And then I have little bottles which represent alcohol or festivity. And so we asked the missionaries about this, and they said, well, one of the biggest challenges as missionaries to the Peruvians is that many of them claim to be Christ, claim to be Christians, yet they saw no conflict with retaining their grip on the gods of the culture. That the term we would term as syncretism. I'm trying to take two things and put them in sync with each other. I'm trying to take the things of the culture and the things of my faith and say, can we somehow put them together? Kind of a way, like, in case Jesus doesn't work out, then I've got something else. I've got, I've got Jesus, he's plan A, but in case plan A doesn't work out, I've got plan B, and then I've got plan C, and I've got plan D. I'm just trying to hold all these things together, somehow hoping that one of them works out. And I know it's a stretch, but, but try to picture churches full of people with competitive allegiances. Can you imagine that? I mean, I realize we're not in Peru, but just try. Do your best to try to imagine a church full of people who have competitive allegiances. People who are trying to, on one hand, hold on to Christ, who is holding all things together. Yet, just in case he doesn't work out, I'm also trying to hold on to things of the world. Can you imagine that? Well, sure you can. It happens here. It happens in my own soul. I feel the competitive allegiances. I'm, I'm wondering at times, Jesus, are you going to pull it all together? Because it doesn't seem like it. And if I could just have this or grab hold or retain this, then maybe that could be satisfying. Paul's reminding this congregation that Jesus is supreme over all things. So we can let go of all things in this world and trust in him alone. And I wondered if each person here today was like a little house. You had a little rooftop over your head. What would be on top? What would be the little symbol that you and I could see of each other and say, this is what you're trusting in? This is what primarily moves you through your life. This is your hope. What would that symbol be for you? Is it just Christ alone or is it Christ? And then just in case he doesn't work out, you've got your hands on some other things. And Paul's trying to help the people in Colossae to say, let go. Let go of all those other things and just use two hands holding on to Jesus. As followers of Christ, we're not Jewish. We're not atheists. We're not agnostics. We're not Jehovah's Witnesses. We're not pantheists. We're not dualists. We're not syncretists. I'm not even sure that's a word. 
But, but do you see how a correct understanding of who Jesus is eliminates all the other possibilities? Once you have a good, clear view of who Jesus is, then he's not all those other things. All those other things are counterfeits. Competitors to the truth. Sam Storms, in his book, he puts it this way. Jesus is the architect and the artist and the aim for which we were created. Whatever exists, exists so that he might be glorified. Jesus is the reason, the goal, the aim, the intent, the point, the purpose, the end, the terminus, the consummation, and the culmination of every molecule that moves. He got it right. And then he asked these questions that I'll leave you with. Does that please you? Do you find unparalleled joy in knowing that it's about him and not about you? Do you find delight in knowing that God didn't create the world so he could have you, but so that you could have him? Let's pray. Lord, we come to a very dense part of your word. And Paul's trying to put these words together in a way that both uh, honors you and we can understand. And Lord, I, I pray for my friends here in this room today who have the, the counterfeit forces always at work trying to call out them, call them out to believe something different than what's true, and also feel the, the religious counterfeits largely trying to hold on to things of the world while we're still trying to hold on to you. It's not possible. And so I pray that you would strengthen us to see you, uh, to see ourselves aright. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.